in the land of Uz, there lived a man whose name was Job. This man was blameless and upright. He feared God and shunned evil. He had seven sons and three daughters, and he owned 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, and 500 donkeys, and had a large number of servants. He was the greatest man among all the people of the East. His sons used to hold feasts in their homes on their birthdays, and they would invite their three sisters to eat and drink with them. When a period of feasting had run its course, Job would make arrangements for them to be purified. Early in the morning, he would sacrifice a burnt offering for each of them, thinking, perhaps my children have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. This was Job's regular custom. One day, the angels came to present themselves before the Lord, and the Satan also came with them. Uh, the Lord said to the, the Satan, where have you come from? And the Satan answered the Lord, from roaming throughout the earth, going back and forth on it. And then the Lord said to the Satan, have you considered my servant Job? There is no one on earth like him. He is blameless and upright, a man who fears God and shuns evil. Does Job fear God for nothing? The Satan replied. Haven't you put a hedge around him and his household and everything he has? You've blessed the work of his hands so that his flocks and herds are spread throughout the land. But now, stretch out your hand and strike everything he has, and he will surely curse you to your face. The Lord said to the Satan, very well then, everything he has is in your power, but on the man himself don't lay a finger. And, and the Satan went out from the presence of the Lord, and one day when Job's sons and daughters were feasting and drinking at the oldest brother's house, a messenger came to Job and said, the oxen were plowing and the donkeys were grazing nearby and the Sabaeans attacked and made off with them. They put the servants to the sword and I am the only one who has escaped to tell you. While he was speaking, another messenger came and said, the fire of God fell from the heavens and burned up the sheep and the servants and I am the only one who has escaped to tell you. While he was speaking, another messenger came and said, the Chaldeans formed three raiding parties and swept down on your camels and made off of them and they put the servants to the sword and I am the only one who has escaped to tell you. And again, while he was speaking, yet another messenger came and said, your sons and daughters were feasting and drinking wine at the older brother's house when suddenly a mighty wind swept in from the desert and struck the four corners of the house. It collapsed on them and they are all dead. And I am the only one who has escaped to tell you. At this, Job got up and tore his robe, and shaved his head, and then he fell to the ground in worship. And he said, naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I will depart. The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. May the name of the Lord be praised. In all this, Job did not sin by charging God with wrongdoing. On another day, the angels again came to present themselves before the Lord, and the Satan also came with them to present himself before God. 
And the Lord said to Satan, where have you come from? And the Satan answered the Lord from roaming the earth and going back and forth on it. And then the Lord said to the Satan, have you considered my servant Job? There is no one on earth like him. He is blameless and upright, a man who fears God and shuns evil. And he still maintains his integrity, though you incited me against him to ruin him without any reason. Skin for skin, the Satan said. A man will give all he has for his own life. But now stretch out your hand and strike his flesh and bones, and he will surely curse you to his face. The Lord said to the Satan, very well then, he is in your hands, but you must spare his life. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord and afflicted Job with painful sores from the soles of his feet to the crown of his head. And then Job took a piece of broken pottery and scraped himself with it as he sat among the ashes. His wife said to him, are you still maintaining your integrity? Curse God and die. And he replied, you are talking like a foolish person. Shall we accept good from God and not trouble in all of this? Job did not sin in what he said. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. God, as we consider this horrifying narrative, we pray that you will help us to know who you are and how we can relate to you, to ourselves, and to each other. Amen. We're continuing uh, today in our fall teaching series, our fall sermon series, uh, looking at the subject of success. What is success, particularly in the, the line of our vocations, our work, uh, but certainly success transcends just work and, and life. And so we're looking at what the Bible has to say about success. And so you can go to avonhope.org to get caught up uh, later last two weeks we've been on this subject, and so uh, today we look at this, again, challenging uh, passage and what it has to tell us about uh, success. Now, it's thought that the, the book of Job or the story of Job is actually, the, the book itself actually is the oldest uh, book in uh, the Bible. You know, the Bible starts with Genesis and Exodus and Leviticus but, and Numbers, but the oldest book is thought to be uh, Job, about, and the story is to to, to talk about something that happened even before the time of Abraham. And so it's an ancient, ancient, ancient uh, story. And so in the intro to the story, we're introduced to this man named uh, Job, who, according to the narrative, is blameless and upright, who respected God and who shunned evil. And then uh, we're told about all this material evidence that one would normally use to identify success talking about all the things that he had. He had seven sons and three daughters. He owned 7,000 sheep. These were enormous numbers, by the, by the way, at the time. So this was indicating this was, he was a wealthy, wealthy uh, person. And even, even the, the numbers, the, the number three, the number five, the number seven throughout the Bible kind of indicate completeness. So these rounded off numbers, the implication is that he was complete, he was full, he, he, was, uh, he was what you would identify as successful if you were using these measures. Three sons, or three, seven sons, three daughters, 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, 500 donkeys, and a large number of servants. He was the greatest man among all the people 
of the east. These were enormous numbers. Uh, Job was successful. He must have been good at his, his job, his vocation. And again, the greatest man in all of the east. It's quite a, uh, that's qu- quite something to say about him. No, so that's the first part of the narrative. Then in verse 8, everything changes. The whole scene changes. So you go from this narrative of this man, Job, in a real time, a real place, to suddenly like the curtain is pulled back on this cosmic inner working of God's government. And so the, the scene completely changes. And we're told that uh, angels came to present themselves to the Lord. So angels, so these are not human beings, but some other kind of beings. They come and they present themselves uh, before God on a, a day. And Bible scholars think that this identification of a day is actually to imply that this is the new year. So in the new year that representatives from the, from the universe come together to present themselves before God. It's kind of like a giant UN ambassador uh, gathering. Representatives from all of the universe coming before God on the, on the new year. And so among these representatives or these angels or these other beings is a one who's referred to as uh, Satan or Satan or the Satan. In fact, actually, the Satan is the best, uh, the best language here because uh, the article is, uh, precedes the, the, the name. And the name is actually not a, a name. It's a description. In fact, there is only one place in the entire Bible where, where the word uh, Satan or Satan indic- is, is u- or could be used as a proper name. In all other cases, it's really a title that can better be d- translated as the accuser, the accuser. And so we see these representatives, these angels, that are coming before God, and uh, among them is this accuser, this accuser. And so when the accuser presents himself, God gives a, a shout-out to uh, Job. To this man. Now, if you remember the story in Genesis 1 and 2, you have God creating the earth. In Genesis 3, you have the story of the, of the fall, where again, uh, Satan or Satan as the dragon uh, shows up, and he convinces the first parents, Adam and Eve, to, to swear their allegiance to him and away from God. And so in essence, Satan is coming before, the, the, before God as a representative of his world, of his uh, his place, his, his kingdom, if you will. You may remember, by the way, that Jesus, when he referred to a Satan, referred to him as the prince of this world. And so the idea is that Satan is coming and he is representing planet Earth and now he is there before God. But God, God uh, calls out uh, Job. And it's almost like he's saying, like, you claim planet Earth as your kingdom, but I have a man. I have a man who's doing right and living by, uh, by my ways in your kingdom. And his name is uh, Job. And so then we're presented with this, uh, this narrative that uh, Satan, the accuser, accuses God. Well, you've been <laughs> protecting this guy. It's unfair. You know, I've got my, my kingdom, and you've got this guy, but you're, you have a hedge around him. It's like you've built a wall around him, and he's got all of these material things, and of course, of course, he's going to follow uh, you. You have been uh, protecting him. And so uh, the Satan, the accuser, proposes a, a test. This is found in verse 11. Stretch out your hand and strike everything he has, and he will surely 
curse you to your face. Put down the hedge, destroy all that he has, and then we'll see what really happens. And then in one of the most disturbing passages in all of the Bible, God agrees to this deal. I mean, you want a challenging passage in the Bible? This, this is it. You know, here's the accuser, and, and, and instead of standing up and, 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 and saying, no, you're not going to hurt my, my, my man Job, uh, God says, okay, okay, let's, 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 let's do this. And so God is basically giving Satan, the accuser, license to make Job's life miserable. Uh, so then, this is what happens. Uh, Job's family is destroyed. All of his, uh, all of his, 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 the things that he owns are, are destroyed. They're all gone. He's left with apparently four servants because every time one servant uh, was left over. So he has four servants left over, but everything else is, is destroyed. And so we see that picture. But then, then it's as if another year goes by. We don't know how long it was. But then we see again a, another scene where the angels are coming. These non-human beings are coming together before God. So maybe it's the next a year. And the angels return to God, and there is uh, Satan, the accuser, again, among with the angels. And again, again, God calls out uh, Job. Hey, hey, you, you, have you taken notice of Job? He hasn't give up, given up on me. You said that if everything was taken away from him, he's going to curse uh, me. But he has been faithful. And so, again, again, the accuser says, well, well, I mean, skin for skin. You know, he, he himself, I mean, when a man is really in his body hurting, when a human in their body is hurting, that's what really uh, changes everything. A man will give all he has for his own life. But now, stretch out your hand and strike his flesh and bones, and he will surely curse your face. And again, you want to say, oh, God, please don't, let's not go for this. This, this, is, this is too far, but the, the story gets more disturbing. God, again, agrees, okay. Okay, okay. And so Job is struck with, with boils from, from the bottom of his feet to the top of his head. Boils everywhere, so he's in pain, and it's just miserable. He's miserable. He's lost everything, and, and uh, even, his, even his spouse is, is encouraging him to just give up on this thing. But verse 22 says of chapter 2, says, in all of this, uh, Job did not sin by charging God with wrongdoing. Job did not give up on God. And, and this is really the, the, the key to the success from the story of Job. In, Job. Uh, in the story of Job, success is rooted in one's ability to have remain faithful, to have faith, to not give up on God. That is the measure of true success. And God is, continues to come back. Job is successful because he has not given up on me. He does not curse God. That was the big issue. Like, is Job going to curse God? Is, God, uh, is Job going to turn against God and say, all this has happened to me, I don't believe in God, or God is, 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 is immoral or whatever, and turn against God? That was the turning point. True success in the story of Job is being able to have faith in the midst of turmoil. That is success. Which leads to the, the question, well, okay, I mean, that, okay, that makes sense, but, I mean, having faith 
and believing in, in, in God and believing that God really cares in the midst of adversity and turmoil is incredibly, incredibly difficult. Why is that? What is it uh, uh, that makes one give up on God in the face of turmoil and adversity? Well, of course, there are, there are myriad answers to that question, but there are a few that jump out. First of all, you know, we have in our mindset as humans the idea that uh, to be blessed means that there is a lack of turmoil in our experience. And so uh, blessing and, and, and peace and prosperity are almost synonymous in contemporary culture, right? Um, much of contemporary Christianity has associated being blessed with materialism. Uh, we be, believe that being blessed means uh, having a great a job. Uh, we're blessed when we have a great apartment. We're blessed when we, our, our career is paying really well and we're doing well in our career. We're blessed when we're about, around beautiful and intelligent uh, people, friends, or family. We're blessed when our bank account is full. We're blessed when we find parking, when we try to come to Advent Hope. You know, those are, you know, hashtag blessed. Those are the, th- those are the times that we are, are, are blessed. You don't see the guy with boils all over his body on hashtag blessed on your feet. Um, and so that's kind of the mindset that we're in. Like, being blessed means that we have prosperity and everything is peaceful and there is no turmoil and there is no adversity. And at some level, I would suggest that this makes total sense. I mean, surely the world was not designed for misery and turmoil and adversity. In fact, if you go back to that Genesis 1 and 2 story, it wasn't. I mean, peace and prosperity and and love were part of the original plan, and things were designed to be that way. And so it's almost like our heart knows that. We know that the turmoil that we experience is not really a part of our our plan, and so we just assume then that being blessed means that we don't have those things. We don't have turmoil. We don't have adversity. Everything is going well. We have all we need. Everybody is beautiful. Everybody is intelligent. Everything is going great. But the story of Job shows us that this is not the case. That being blessed does not mean that we don't have adversity, that we don't have uh, turmoil. Misery isn't the result of a person's failure either. That Misery happens because we are in a broken and battered world. And so success has a a whole other definition when we look at this story of Job. In fact, wealth and health are not guaranteed in the life of a believer in God. And the the teaching that that is the case is unfortunately a great fallacy. True success is often accompanied by great, great hardship. And so being blessed does not equal everything going great. Um, secondly, we have a difficult time and, 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 and are tempted to give up on God in the face of turmoil because we feel like God has to ultimately be responsible for uh, everything. Like, okay, if God is all-powerful and he's created the universe and I'm experiencing turmoil and adversity, well, then this must be due to him. And of course, the story of Job indicates that there is some truth to that. I mean, ultimately, God is all-powerful, and God uh, could take all of your turmoil and adversity away, but God is playing, apparently, by a different set of rules. 
In fact, there's a great case to, to be made that while God is all-powerful, he has framed himself in, and that there are certain things that he does not uh, do uh, because he is trying to build a different kind of relationship with his human creations, with his creation with us. And so he, he, there are things that he, he doesn't do. And so while God is all-powerful all and we feel like uh, God is, has to be responsible for everything, we, we forget a key part of the biblical story, and it's found really, really specifically here in the story of Job. And that is that there is an enemy at work against the world. Now, this question of like how can there be a good God when the world is so messed up and my life is so messed up and the planet is so messed up, how can those two coexist. It's a huge ethical question. It's a question for which many people have given up on the whole idea of God altogether. And so Job helps us to see what really is going on. Like, we cannot forget that there is an enemy at work in the world. And this becomes very, very clear in this story of Job. The Satan, the accuser, the one who is going to God and almost like creating irritation, like, like poking God trying to get, get at the human creations, his uh, kids. And so this idea that there is evil in the world, that there is another power in the universe that is operating, and this power is operating against the goodness of God, is, is incredibly important because without that, then ultimately God is responsible for everything. But again, Job helps us to see, no, no, there is one, an accuser who is working both against God and against us. Uh, Jesus told, when, when he was here, Jesus told this parable. It's in Matthew chapter 13 and verse 24. He said, the king, he was talking to his disciples. He said, the kingdom of heaven is like a, a farmer who went, goes out and sows seed in his field. But while everyone was sleeping, the enemy came and sowed weeds among the weeds. We imagine a farmer who all his finances are invested in this crop, but he's got a, a competitor in another a field. And so when the farmer falls asleep, the competitor or the enemy comes over and puts weeds in the field. His enemy came and sowed weeds among the wheat and then went away. And when the wheat, wheat sprouted up and formed heads, then the weeds also appeared. The owner's servants came to him and said, uh, sir, didn't you sow good seed in your field? Where then did these weeds come from? And the farmer said, an enemy has done this. An enemy has done this. Trying to, trying to hold down his crop so that the, the other can, can flourish. And so Jesus was very clear. Look, there is an enemy at work in the world. In Revelation chapter 12 and verse 7, another one of the Jesus apostles talked about this war that broke out in heaven. And uh, he references very very clearly the idea of accuser, an accuser. There is one who accuses, he says, the brothers and sisters, and he accuses them before God day and night. And so this idea of an enemy, the accuser, is a theme that runs throughout the Bible. You can make the case that the Bible is the story of God working on behalf of humanity to try to reconcile things, but along with that theme is this idea that there is an accuser, that there is an enemy that has been at work throughout human history, who is actually working against the good work of God in the universe and in this world and in your life. We see from the story of Job that the enemy is malicious, that the enemy uses even our closest companions. We won't read it now because it's too much to read, but the, if you continue reading the story of Job, it's, it's, uh, there's a lot going on, but one of the key features is that Job's closest friends come to console him. And 
their, their consolation to him is basically trying to encourage him to, to, to confess his wrongdoing that he hasn't uh, uh, committed. And at the end, even his spouse is like, you need to just curse God and die. What are you doing? And so sometimes this enemy, who's very malicious, even uses our closest companions uh, against us. In fact, in fact, the enemy is so adept and so good that oftentimes the enemy uh, convinces us to use ourselves against us, right? The influence of the work of the enemy, of the enemy has affected even our own ability to think prop properly. And so we do things to hurt ourselves. And again, this goes back to Genesis chapter 3 when the, our, our parents made that first decision to go on their own way and to claim allegiance to themselves and to the accuser. That led to all kinds of, of problems. So that now we are almost an enemy of ourselves. We do things that hurt ourselves. And so we've got all of this a working against us, but this leads us to give up on God. We give up on God when we face uh, turmoil because we, we have associated being blessed with a life of ease or lack of turmoil or we feel like God must be responsible for everything or we forget that there is a, an evil one, an accuser who is at work. The world is a broken a place, and it's so easy to attribute this all to uh, the work of, of God and yet forgetting that the, the accuser is out there. The accuser is working, can mess up our whole interpretation of what's uh, going on. And so this idea in Job that there is one working against us is so essential to really understand the big picture of what's happening, that there is this cosmic thing, this global conflict going on. And so... Uh, losing uh, faith, cursing God is the ultimate uh, failure, according to uh, Job. And so exhibiting faith in the midst of turmoil is true success, according to Job. I mean, that was God's definition of success. Look, Job is successful. He's a successful human being because he doesn't give up on me even amidst turmoil, tragedy, and adversity. So this leads to Another question, well, all well and good, but how do we trust in God amidst turmoil, adversity, pain, and whatever is to come? I mean, that's the big question. How do we do this? Like, wow, Job, great example for us, but difficult. I mean, when, when, when things really fall down, when our lives fall apart, when things aren't going our way, how do we have faith? How do we not just give up on, on God ourselves? That is the big question. Well, the good news is that, that Job didn't receive his power from himself alone. In fact, there is a, another one who came and exhibited even, even more faith in the midst of turmoil and adversity. In Psalm chapter 22 and verse 1, we get a picture of God's work. Psalm 22, verse 1, by the way, is the passage that Jesus was reciting when he was dying on the cross. And it starts off this way. My God, you may remember this, if you remember the story of Jesus dying on the cross. My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken you? Forsaken me, why are you so far from me? That's Psalm chapter 22, verse 1. Now, Psalm 22, verse 1, actually the entire passage of Psalm was a, was a prophecy 
about Jesus the Messiah. And so Jesus knew what he was doing. He was taking comfort in remembering his Bible verse, his Sabbath school lesson when he was dying on the cross. And so he was reciting Psalm chapter 22.1, a prophecy that had written be, been written before he came, but had been written about him. And so it starts off with this, this, this moaning, this just grief. God, why have you forsaken me? But the, the psalm doesn't stop there, just like a, a Jesus' experience on the cross didn't stop with the adversity and turmoil. And he wasn't giving up on God, even though it's, it starts in that, in that vein. Psalm chapter 22, verse 16, uh, the whole narrative changes. We, see, we can imagine Jesus contemplating this as he's surrounded by the, the soldiers and those who are calling out curses upon him. Psalm 22, verse 16 says, Dogs surround me. A pack of villains encircles me. They pierce my hands and my feet. All my bones are on display. People stare and gloat over me. They divide my clothes among them, and they cast lots for my garments. But you, Lord, you're not far from me. You are my strength. Come quickly to help me. See, Jesus on the cross, he didn't give up on God, even though he was experiencing incredible turmoil, turmoil like none of us will ever experience. He experienced adversity like we will never experience. Jesus expressed faith in God even in the midst of an incredible adversity. And so Jesus is a great example for us, but thank God he's not only an example for us. We are told that because Jesus died, because Jesus experienced turmoil and adversity and did not give up on God himself, we too have access to new power now, power outside of our, ourselves, because Jesus suffered died, rose again, and ascended, we have access to the Spirit. And the Spirit has the capability of giving us power outside of ourselves to experience turmoil and adversity and still have faith in God. Uh, Acts chapter 5, the disciples, this is now after Jesus had died and rose. And this, this group of guys that had been with Jesus for three and a half years and had not, had not really expressed any kind of ability to overcome adversity before. But after Jesus' death, resurrection, and ascension, they were filled with the Spirit, and they had power to do what they could not do before. And we're told in Acts chapter 5 that the apostles met with the religious leaders who were very scary. They had all kinds of, of power, power to do harm against them. And so these, these apostles left this group of religious leaders, but they rejoiced because they had been counted worthy of suffering disgrace for the name of Jesus. And so day after day, they continued meeting together despite the fact that they were in danger and their lives were in danger. So this is what happens. This is why, why Acts chapter 5 is so important. We see this transformation of and changed from this group of guys who were scared before Jesus died. They were scared of everything. And afterwards, a total transformation. They're full of the Spirit, and they are now able to have faith even in the midst of turmoil and adversity. And so the great promise is for us, 
for you and I and anyone is that as we embrace the work of Jesus on our behalf, as we acknowledge and recognize him as an example, but not just as an example, that because he died, we now have access to new power. As we acknowledge and embrace that, God can fill us with power we don't have for ourselves. And so that we too can face turmoil and adversity and keep faith in the great God who has made all things. Paul, who was one of the great articulators of this idea in Romans chapter 8, he writes this. He says, we know that the whole creation has been groaning in the pains of childbirth right up to this time. The world is a mess, all right? We can acknowledge that, right? The world is a mess. I mean, you do not, I have the, my, my, my New York Times is waiting for me out on the in the alleyway, and the guy is supposed to throw it over the fence, and he never does it, and it's all, it's a great drama, but it's waiting for me, and when I go out there to pick it up, I'm going to open the first page, and you know what I'm going to read about? Some kind of turmoil, because the world is a mess, but not only is the world a mess, we're a mess, you're a mess, you've got adversity, some of you, you know, on the outside, everything looks like it's going well, but inside, you're a mess, and whether it's a job that isn't working out, or a bank account that isn't full enough, or a relationship that's not going well. You're a mess. I'm a mess. The world is a mess. We're all a mess. And so Paul says the the creation, this world is groaning. There's pain like childbirth. When is this going to end? Not only that, he says, but we ourselves who are the first fruits. Now he's talking about Christian, people who have embraced Jesus. We ourselves, the first fruits of the Spirit, we also groan inwardly. As we wait eagerly for adoption, we wait for the thing that's to come that's going to clear all of this up and there's going to be no more pain or sadness or or, or two small bank accounts or terrible jobs or broken relationships. All of that's going to be fixed. But right now, we're moaning and groaning and in pain and waiting for something new. We ourselves who are the first fruits of the Spirit, grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption as kids and the redemption of our broken bodies. For in this, we have hope, and that hope saves us. But hope that is seen is no hope at all. Who hopes for what they already have? But if we hope for what we don't yet have, we wait for it patiently. In the same way, the Spirit helps us in our weaknesses. We don't even know what we ought to pray for. But the Spirit himself intercedes for us with words that are groans and that our own human words cannot express. See, Paul is painting this picture of this broken world that is groaning and is in pain and broken people who are groaning and in pain but who are transformed because of the work of Jesus, that Jesus has come and done for us what we cannot do, and as we embrace what he does, it gives us power to live as people of hope who don't give up on God because adversity and turmoil and pain are part of the experience. And this is success. According to the, the book of Job, this is success. Not giving up on God, but you're going to give up on God unless Jesus has really done what he did and we embrace that. And as we embrace 
Jesus' work on our behalf, we are empowered to be people of faith even amidst turmoil and pain and adversity. Now, I know some of you are in the midst of terrible adversity now, and you may be experiencing terrible uh, pain, and again, everything may be looking great on the outside, but inside there's a brokenness. And so today, there is hope. There is hope that there is a God who's experienced pain, God who's made it through pain, and that God reaches out to each one of us and invites us to embrace his work for us so that he can fill us with hope and peace and blessedness that transforms us and transcends the idea of being blessed that the world has put on us. And so today, whatever your circumstance is, whatever the adversity is that you're facing or the turmoil or brokenness or pain that you're facing, may you have hope that comes from the Spirit. And may you experience faith in the God who will never, ever give up on you. Amen.